0: How's it going, everyone? Today, our special guest is the incredible Bob Hamer. Bob had a former Marine, uh, wife, two kids, and he retired from the FBI after 26 years, many of them undercover. He is the author of three great books and uh, several novellas, and you've done some work uh, doing some on-set tacking for SVU, the TV show. And so it's, uh, it's kind of great to have you on here today, Bob.
1: Thanks, John. Appreciate you having me on.
0: And uh, I reached I started this podcast back in last March at the onset of COVID because my world of doing security for artists and bands kind of slowed down. Obviously, with events being canceled, and this podcast was a means for me to kind of learn about different people, whether it's martial arts or about domestic violence or human trafficking or other aspects of law enforcement, and. To come across someone like you, I know we talked about this literally right before we jumped on you, but your life is like that of a Tom Clancy character, and it's <laughs> it, it's very fascinating that here you are today to kind of talk about your story.
1: Yeah, well, it, it, they're never going to cash me to play myself in Hollywood. One, you know, I I'm pure vanilla, so that was always that always allowed me to uh, my success in the undercover world. And uh, I had a great career. I was I was very fortunate. I, I always said I never. Never really had a uh, midlife crisis. I just became a different personality. So,
0: so before we kind of dig into your career, um, the crazy thing, there's two things that came out of COVID. I felt that really took over outside the pandemic itself is this concept of police defunding, and the uh, the concept, uh, the story behind human trafficking, which seemed like it it's been around for decades. It's weird how it came out during a pandemic. And so the first question, with the police, the funding, the movement for the media, people who push back, your prior law enforcement of 26 years, how would you have dealt with going to work knowing that half the country is being forced or being told that we need to boycott and defund law enforcement?
1: Well, I think that is, it's a tough question because you are putting the law enforcement officer at a disadvantage. I I mean, I think, look, in, in modern society, law enforcement hasn't, hasn't always been looked upon with, uh, with the bright lights and you watch Hollywood and typically the, the undercover agent is a womanizer and and a drug addict and a recovering alcoholic. I mean, Hollywood and society has, has always kind of put us in a box of, of some sort. Uh, In terms of the defunding of the police, um, look, if a local – I believe in democracy. I believe in the republic. I believe that if if a local society wants to try something different, then that's up to them. But don't be coming to me now uh, when it fails and ask for my tax dollars to help bring it back uh, to where it was before your experiment.
0: It's uh, one of my family family friends here in Massachusetts uh, works with the state police and stuff, and they were doing these protests back uh, a couple months ago. And one of the protests was a anti- well, when there was an issue that day, the first people they ran to were the police. So I found the irony of that very uh, yeah. like like what's the gist behind it? Like, if you want to hold people accountable, why would anyone want to do that? But to it's just it's it's just unfortunate that these men and women in law enforcement today not only do we have to deal with a dangerous job, which they signed up for, but it would be kind of cool if people supported them, like no, not all these people are out to get you. It's it's just very disheartening.
1: Yeah, it, you know it's 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 not the same thing, but quite frankly, I remember the Oklahoma City bombing, and. At that point, maybe it was naive, my, naivete on my part because I hadn't been working those particular type of violations and wasn't, was not aware of that type of movement. I was doing other things in the FBI, but all of a sudden in my mind, it was like, wait a minute, we've got people coming at us from both sides, you know, from from the right and the left, and I kept thinking, oh, I just sort of have to look to the, to the left, to the you know, this was a little beyond or before my time, but you know, looking at the weathermen and some of the anti-war protesters and, and those type of people, and now all of a sudden, like, wait a minute, like, <laughs> are there are people that are that are people on on what I thought were on my side, and now they're opposed to to what we're doing as well. So, uh, it's it's been there, but I think with the twenty-four-seven news cycle. It just seems worse, and uh, I just I pray that that we find a solution and we can we can find some type of of unity in this country right now.
0: Along along, along the lines of that, the other thing I've noticed really pop up is the human trafficking and these cases where our mutual friends like Craig Sawyer and organizations like that that rescue these kids are. These federal agencies that rescue these children that have been kidnapped and stuff. Why do you think it came out during a pandemic? And I ask you this because one of your big cases undercover was helping infiltrate Nambla, uh, which we will talk about, and bringing down some of the people that inner circle.
1: Well, it, it's it's interesting. It's almost human trafficking. The terminology has it's somewhat changed. I mean, what what we used to consider pimping. Uh, and prostitution, in some respects, is human trafficking. And it's been, I think, somewhat all put together into this, uh, this this big ball. I think one of the problems that we had once the pandemic started, at least I see it from, from a parent and from a grandparent standpoint, is now you have children at home and they're online all the time. And the danger is once these kids get online and they get access to other websites, they're spending more time, they're getting involved with online gaming, uh, and it's just an opportunity for adults with with bad motives to to get involved as well. So uh, I think there's been more of an emphasis since the pandemic when we've had more this idea of the kids are home; that they're going to be, they're going to be homeschooled. They're going to be on the computers at home, and there's just more of an opportunity than maybe there is in,
0: in a traditional
1: educational setting.
0: Now, social media, when you were starting doing your undercover work, it, I don't think it really blew up until the last couple of years, which you just brought up. And how would that have hindered your job? Back then versus how would it have improved your job now, especially with the different forms of social media out there where there must be a lot that is beneficial, but also makes undercover work and helping doing what law enforcement does to grab these bad people.
1: Yeah, I think that there's I think one of the, the problems I see from an undercover standpoint when it comes to social media is. Do you have backstopping in the social media realm? I didn't have this problem when, when, when I was working, uh, now it would be, uh, Hey John, you know, what's, what's your Facebook page? What's your, what's your Twitter account? Uh, So that there can be a little bit more checking and find out that there's, there's nothing really there. Uh, because all of a sudden Bob Wallace, which was one of my aliases, if someone wanted to check my facebook account they're going to find out hmm this just started 3 months ago and right so, and because of the variety of characters that you might play i can i think probably a lot of law enforcement people right now have fake facebook accounts or social media accounts but now all of a sudden if you're playing a drug dealer or a weapons dealer but so your, your Facebook account somewhat reflected that. And now you've got the role as a, a fence, uh, buying Western art and you have nothing on your social media page that reflects that, that that's going to cause you some problems. So it's one of these deals that as an undercover agent, you're just going to have to come up with a backstory that works for you and uh, and it can be done and they can falsify backstories and, and social media accounts. But it's just not as easy as it once was. By the same token, it's the same thing. If I am targeting an individual, I want to look at his social media accounts and I want to learn from him. And, and I can find out where he stands politically, where he stands on this particular issue so that I can sidle up to him and say, hey, I, I agree. With, you know, I have the same position on the second amendment that you
0: do or, you know,
1: something like that.
0: Now it shows like to catch a predator shows where it's, I always, I'm always perplexed and I'm glad these guys are caught and stopped before they do something. But are, are the bad guys and girls that stupid? Or is it one of these things where the undercover work and the research will goes into this case is so well done that, it's going to catch you no matter what i just think some of these people are so stupid and messed up that how do you not know this is coming
1: you know i i think it's a combination of two things um, one many of these people are very intelligent but they have a flaw and so it's it's up to the undercover agent to exploit that flaw on the other hand many of them are stupid and It makes it easier. I always said that I always wanted my targets to be just a few IQ points below me, one to make it fun, but (laughs) still that I could catch him. So um, it isn't there. It's kind of hard to prove a negative, but I'm assuming there are a lot of crooks out there that aren't being caught and never get caught. Right. uh, And they have to they have to face their judgment day and in a a different realm than what we are today
0: so say you mentioned you have you have to pretend you're an arm smuggler or a you're in a mafia or you're a pedophile or all these different things how long do you have to get into that character and once you are in that character is there a time period between resetting yourself because you have a family too and how do you juggle not bringing that character home even if you do come home, if you're not gone for three years,
1: yeah, you know, I, I was very fortunate. I mean, one, I think God gave me a screwed-up brain, so, but I was able to compartmentalize. So, I, I really could, I could be the contract killer in the in the afternoon and come home and coach little league baseball at night. Uh, I could be the husband and the father. Uh, so, I think that it was a matter for me of being able to compartmentalize. But when I got into character, I was that character. I mean, just like a, a good actor, and I'm not saying I'm a good actor, I'm too stupid to memorize lines, but a, a good actor, when when they say the camera is rolling, now he becomes that character, and then when the director yells cut, they they become the other person, the, you know, the real person, not the person that they're pretending to be. So I was able to do that, and when I got into character, I was that person. I had to think like that person. So I was no longer Bob Hamer. I was Bob Wallace or I was uh, Bob Webb or Bob Bourne, some of my other undercover names. Uh, it's just a matter of of you becoming one of them without becoming one of them.
0: Now, with, obviously with your background, it helped. But would you, as a father, did you find yourself – overprotective if that makes sense because you know what's going on there or were there stuff where as you see your kids growing up like the i know social media was a little bit different but different trends and stuff did you trust your kids to kind of hey like this is going on dad like was that relationship ever get affected by you being two people no
1: i i think we we always i always had a great relationship uh with with my wife and family it's kind of interesting john i i was in a i was in the marine corps for four years and as i was getting out i applied to both the fbi and the cia and when i went back for some interviews with the cia i was kind of shocked when the the uh, person that was interviewing me said look it's important for you to share with your wife what you're doing because." If you're out at 2 a.m. in the morning, she's going to think you're running around, but she needs to know that you're really out there trying to recruit uh, an asset for the U.S. government. Now, and he kind of winked and he said, now, you may be running around, but, you know, she has to believe you're out there recruiting an asset. So I came back with once the FBI hired me, I came back with the idea that I was going to share as much as I possibly could with my family. Uh, I learned quickly in my FBI career that I had to be careful what I shared with the FBI. So I my wife and kids, in many respects, knew more about what was going on than than my handling agents. Um, that they didn't know that, hey, look, he, I mean, they knew I was undercover. They didn't. I wouldn't say, hey, I'm having Lunch with Jimmy Bag of Donuts at the Pizza Emporium today, but they knew that I was undercover. So it it was sort of a shared, sort of a shared family secret, I guess. And they knew that sometimes things were dangerous. Sometimes things didn't go as as well as they could. Uh, we joked that I I had a shooting, and my son ended up every. For about a year, he slept in our bedroom, and uh, he would go to sleep in his bed. But he, in the middle of the night, he'd come over and sleep in our bed and or in our bedroom. And we always said that's why there were never any more children for that that year because he was always in the bedroom. But it was the idea that that we we worked together as a family through these problems, and uh, it they were my tether to the real world it certainly wasn't the
0: FBI. Right. Well, that's awesome. Now, when, if you're undercover with, say, the Russia mafia or the Italian mafia or a gag or the Costa Nostra or these other entities, was there ever a fear that there could be, you're with the Russians, but they're making a deal with the Italians. Could Would any of your characters ever get mixed up where, or was the planning and the advancing of these intel sessions and your work I always pictured you on one side and then some guy over here in another family or gang be like, hey, aren't you that Bob Wallace? Like, how does that work where you're never caught up?
1: You know, it it was interesting, John. I never got I was never in a position where I had criminals working against me. I did. I tell the story in my book, The Last Undercover. Uh, I was sitting in the lobby of the airport Hilton hotel, the LAX uh, Hilton hotel in Los Angeles. And I had just flashed a half million dollars to an international heroin trafficker. I mean, (laughs) $500,000 in cash. And I had just opened the briefcase, showed the money to this person. This guy told me that, his partner was in the lobby of the hotel with a gun. And if anything went wrong, I was going to be the first person they killed. You wouldn't believe this if you saw it on <laughs> the movie or a TV show. I mean, it just, it's unbelievable. My first year of law school, I lived with a family in Cincinnati, Ohio. We, we attended the same church. They had an extra bedroom and I, I rented the bedroom from them. They walked into the lobby of that hotel. Now we're talking two thousand miles and a decade earlier that they walk in on this half million dollar heroin deal in the lobby of a hotel. Fortunately, the wife uh, saw me, and it's she had prayed on the way in when once they said the pilot said we're about to land in Los Angeles. She prayed. And she said, God, I, I know Bob does dangerous things. I just hope that you'll watch over him today with whatever he's doing. So I was kind of on her heart and mind, but she walked in. She and her husband walked in to the lobby of the hotel and saw me. And I'm wearing a microphone that's strapped to my chest. And literally, you could hear my heart thumping as as uh, as I spotted them and she spotted me. And I kind of leaned back in my chair and gave uh, sort of this look and nod of, hey, this ain't the time for grips and grins. And fortunately, she grabbed her husband and they got their hotel key and went up the elevator. And about 10 minutes later, two kilos of, of China white heroin shows up and the FBI arrests three international heroin traffickers. But it was, it was like, oh my gosh, you know, you could, you, again, you wouldn't believe that story if you saw it on TV, but a decade later and 2000 miles, these people walk in on me. Now,
0: were you you able to tell them afterwards? Oh yeah. Yeah. We
1: we went to dinner that night. My, my (laughs) wife came down and, uh, we all went to dinner and we, we had a good laugh about it, but, uh. Yeah, thank goodness. and I don't want to offend any of your your listeners, but they were the Tupperware distributors of Cincinnati. So they were these vivacious people that you know slap you on the back, hey Bob, how's the FBI treating you? You know, it, it would have been one of those things if 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 she wouldn't have had the the uh wherewithal to keep walking.
0: When you're undercover. And I I, obviously, I know you can't talk about specifics, but what is the duty of your agency, FBI, to let local jurisdictions know there's someone undercover? And the reason I ask is, and I love Hollywood, I love the movies, I know almost 99% of it's all bullshit, but in the movie Caught Air, the ATF hides their guy in the BOP without telling BOP, and they have this... Where it's it where whatever it's Hollywood, but is there a duty to tell other agencies or is he undercover? You don't know who to trust.
1: Well, I think it's, it probably is a matter of, of where you are and what your relationship is with, with the locals. I mean, let's face it there. I didn't want F other than my case agent and my supervisor. I didn't want other FBI agents knowing what I was doing or who I was meeting with, because you can't, you could never be sure that there's not going to be a leak. Uh, there, there were opportunities that that we had. I, I work mostly in the Los Angeles area on, on many cases. So we had a centralized uh, number that you could call and say, okay, we, we they wouldn't necessarily say Bob Hamer, but they would say, hey, we've got a, a white male that will be purchasing A Kilo of cocaine later today at this address and part of that reason was You didn't want to end up having a a blue on blue situation Where it turned out that it was the cops selling us the drugs, you know, they thought they were gonna Rip me off or arrest me when I show up with the money to buy the drugs And we were gonna arrest them when when I showed up with the money to buy the drugs, so Part of that was for that reason. But most of the time, no. Um, we didn't share with with other individuals, uh, other entities, what we were doing unless we absolutely had to. Now, I worked one case, um, Operation Smoking Dragon. It began as counterfeit cigarettes and evolved into uh, a $60 million shoulder fire missile deal and purchase of the Super Note. North Korea Actually, counterfeits our hundred dollar bill. It's called the super note. Uh, probably, your listeners have, have realized that there's a new hundred dollar bill floating around. Well, partially, or probably the main reason for that is because North Korea was counterfeiting our old hundred dollar bill. Well, in that case, when it began with counterfeit cigarettes, it was it was just the FBI and Customs that were working together. I mean, we we were working with some customs agents as it as that case evolved and progressed uh we ended up getting counterfeit postage stamps i mean they were they were bringing in thousands of counterfeit postage stamps well we had to cut in the postal authorities Uh, once we started working with the counterfeit money we had to cut in the secret service so up until that time we're not going to We're not telling these people, but once once it it becomes necessary and that's always a a tough situation because um, it's not necessarily corruption. It's somebody just bragging, somebody wanting to put it on paper, somebody talking about it in another briefing. And then it it gets out that, oh, wait, the FBI has an operation that they're. They're targeting some guy delivering postage stamps. Well, now someone in the post office decides to put this out and somehow it leaks that there's an an undercover operation. So it's it's like that. I, I I won't name the police officer, but early in my career, we had wiretaps up on an organized crime figure. And we 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 were working with the local police And told them that there was going to be a robbery of an art gallery and notified the local police. Well, it turned out that that police officer had to cancel his date on Saturday night, called the date and said, hey, um, i got this big operation. We're working with the FBI. Uh, This art gallery is going to be robbed. And so we're going to work with them. Well, it turned out that his girlfriend was friends with the owner of the art gallery, and her husband was actually helping to coordinate this, this burglary. So it, it wasn't corruption on his part. It was just he was kind of trying to brag to, to his girlfriend about who he was and how big he was and how important he was. And I'm sitting there. I'm liter- literally on the wires, listening to the phone call, when the the target's wife calls and says, "Hey, uh, I just found out from so and so that the LAPD, or I'm sorry, that the police department says that that our art gallery is going to get robbed tonight." And it, <laughs> it was like, "Gee, no." <laughs> oh. So, yeah, it's just you know, sort of the, it sounds simplistic, but loose lips sink ships. And the less people that know, the the better off you are.
0: One of my uh, actual questions was, as, a, as that case kind of you, you're there for the counterfeit cigarettes and it gets bigger. And these other you have to bring the other groups. Does is there is can ego be healthy in those situations or does some agencies have like that kind of provider Like, oh, we'll help you. We'll take it from here. Or is it a sense of pride, since it's your case, the FBI? That hey, we need your help here, but we wanna we wanna lock this up. Like, how does that, yeah.
1: John? That, that's sort of the typical Hollywood. That you know, hey, we're FBI, we're coming in, we're gonna take over the case. And I never saw that in my 26 years. Um, I used to always joke that it was like little league baseball. The kids could get along; it was the parents that caused the problem. Right. And, the brass, and, and and most of the time. When we were working with other agencies, uh, it was more of a personal relationship that we had with them, and and they with us. And it was kind of like, "Hey, look, John, here's what we're working on. We need your help, uh, but we'll promise to let your boss come to the press conference, but just sort of stay out of our way.
0: Right? And you take a picture with us." Yeah. And that was, I mean,
1: and we were the same way, look, whatever you need, John, I look, I will help you out What whatever you need. Uh, but you, you got to give me a, a heads up so that we can let my, my boss show up at the, at the press conference, or at least you give us recognition at the, at the press. And I know there were times when I disappointed other officers and agencies because things got moving quickly and they probably didn't get as much credit as as they had wanted or they deserved. But um, I preferred if, as much as possible to keep it all in house and just make it an FBI case.
0: Right. Now, your one of your most prolific cases was the Dabla, and yeah. when you brought down, I think, with seven or eight of these inner circle people. Now, do, were you familiar with Dabla before that, or is this one of those things where one case gets finished? and It's like okay for the next. X amount of years, this is what you're doing.
1: The Nambla case was interesting.
0: Uh, I was a
1: little semi-familiar with Nambla, the North American Man Boy Love Association, only because it just seemed so outlandish that I'd heard right. about it. But I, I really wasn't even working child exploitation at the time that the Nambla investigation came up. But what it that case? Began with uh, an individual that was arrested in Knoxville, Tennessee for possession of child pornography. And when they looked at his computer, they saw pictures on his computer and they saw pictures of him having sex with little boys over in Thailand. Well, during the interrogation, he admitted that it was a a travel agent who was putting together these overseas tours for BLs, boy lovers, as they call themselves. And uh, that's how he got to Thailand through this travel agent. So the FBI tasked the Los Angeles office to investigate the 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 travel agent, and they came they came to me. I was a, a certified undercover agent, and I, I, I joke that they came to me and said, "Hey, we've got this undercover uh, sex tour case to uh, to Thailand," and I. Jumped on it right away because I figured I was going to get massages paid with uh, someone's tax dollars. And it turned out that, you know, when I said, yeah, I would do it. He said, well, let me tell you, this is about men who are having sex with little boys. So I I agreed uh, to work the case. But it was one of these things where now and this was always for me, this was always the beauty of working undercover is you had to become knowledgeable enough as I said earlier, you became one of them without becoming one of them. And throughout my career, there were times when I had to learn enough about weapons, enough about stolen art, enough about real estate and investments that they at least thought I I was conversant in the topic. Well, now I'm going to be a boy lover. And I had to learn everything I could about boy lovers. I, I went on the internet. I went into some Predicated chat rooms, pretending to be Bobby Thirteen. I, I I wanted to be able to think like them, to talk like them, to experience life like them. And as a result of that research, I I learned more about Nambla. I assumed that most of these guys going on the trip would be Nambla members, and it was a matter of sending thirty five dollars in to join the organization. And I was doing it more. To build up my street cred, uh, when in fact I was going to take this trip over to Thailand to say, "Oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a Nambla member. I get their magazine." You know, I was hoping to get a membership card, but I, I didn't get that. But uh, so that's how I first got involved in Nambla. What happened was then that the the uh, the travel agency case essentially fell apart. Right. But Nambla. Then, because I joined the organization, I began getting emails from NAMBLA uh, asking me if I would participate in their Christmas card program and their pen pal program to to send cards to uh, incarcerated NAMBLA members and and maybe to correspond with them. And at the time, I was I was actually on the Joint Terrorism Task Force, but it was kind of in between running down leads on. Terrorism leads in Southern California. I maintained my contact with Nambla and sent some sent Christmas cards, became pen pals with a couple of the guys. I have to admit, it was kind of a, a joke on my part. I mean, it was more to just kind of I enjoy screwing with people. And so yes. I, I, I enjoyed that. Uh, I wrote for their magazine. I wrote a couple articles for their magazine, but the the NAMBLA was sort of on the the back end as I was I was doing the terrorism cases. Then I learned that they were having a conference in San Francisco, one of their national conferences. I contacted somebody, and they said, "Look, you can't." You're not invited because you have to be a member for three years and you have to be sponsored by another member. And I just I put it off, but I still kept sending Christmas cards and, and writing to these guys. And and the the letters they were sending me were so graphic, were so horrible that I I wanted to keep keep it up for the sake of possibly finding other travel agents. Right. Uh, finding other people involved in this that were putting together these overseas travel cases, but we also knew that that there were many states that had civil commitment procedures. So, if you have if you've been convicted of a sex crime, but you aren't deemed to be rehabilitated, but have served your your criminal confinement, they can maintain your as as a civil commitment until you're deemed ready to go back into society. So we we took the position that let's keep up with the correspondence. We were able to keep a couple people in jail just because of the letters, the graphic letters they were writing me. Uh, and then all of a sudden after about uh, 18 months, I get invited to a NAMBLA conference that I appeared to be a true believer. I, The guys that were corresponding with me had told the people at headquarters that, Hey, you know, this, Bob Wallace is a good guy, and he he writes regularly, and he sent me Christmas cards, and and then I like I said I'd submitted a couple articles for their magazine, so I looked like a true believer, and that's when they invited me back for my, for my first face to face meeting with some NAMBLA members.
0: I imagine that undercover work when it comes to the the children or pedophilia and stuff like this. That is that the toughest to shake out of character, especially as a father and a, a husband. Like, is that in terms of the family dynamic back home? Is that the toughest kind of thing to shake out of your head?
1: Oh yeah, I, I, I think, and I think that's true. I think if you talk to the most sex crime investigators, that they're going to tell you that the that the hardest thing is is to see what is happening to children. And now you go back and try to lead a, a normal life with your family. The thing that made NAMBLA difficult was it was a 24-7 mindset. Um, in other words, if, if, if you, I'm being hired to kill somebody, they really don't care whether I'm a Republican or a Democrat or whether I like football or the ballet. They just want to know that I have the capability of killing someone and not getting caught a drug dealer. It's the same thing. Yeah. You may try to find a common interest, but they, they really don't care if you got enough green to buy the drugs and they don't think you're a cop, they're going to sell you the drugs, but I don't have to sit there and talk about my position on, uh, gender equity studies or anything like that. So, but NAMBLA, now we're talking 24 uh, seven. They're, as, a, as an example, one of the guys had, had uh, videotaped a, a, a Sylvan learning commercial. And you and I might watch that and say, hey, you know what? That's a good idea. My grandchild or my my children need help with their reading. Let's go to Sylvan. No, this guy was in love with the, the child on the commercial and just watched it over and over again. Uh, when we were, we were in Miami at a... a uh, in in Cocoa beach it was a beautiful night there are these women that are running around in beach attire and i can't look at them because i'm not interested in women i'm interested in little boys and these nambla members are sitting there and they're not looking at this i mean clearly a 10 walking (laughs) down the street they're looking at this 10 year old boy in in the thirty-two jersey, or in the blue or red shirt, and they're playing the dating game. You know, who do you want? You know, well, it's the, the kid in the blue shirt. Okay, well then I'll take the kid in the, in the red shirt. I mean, that type of thing. So you had to be able to see the world through their eyes and through their mind, in in order to make them believe that you are who
0: you say you are. It's, it obviously you're a professional, but. Part of me is kind of like, you arrest them, you you get them locked up, they serve jail time. They have a great lawyer, they don't serve half the time. As a as a human being, my first thought is, I want to strangle this person on the beach right now. If this was my kid, or I look doing something to another kid, and so how do you, it must be tough to kind of realize that if the, if say you had two sons and these people were making comments to you, you're kind of like, I, I would kill these guys. I think any father or mother would. And how do you kind of, how do you, that mental kind of hurdle you have to kind of cross or not cross?
1: Well, I, I, and I think that's the key. Um, Certainly after my first NAMBLA meeting in New York city, I, I was walking back to the hotel and, and called my son who at the time was out of high school and playing pro baseball. And I said, you know, I'd rather go in there with a grenade and just blow all of us up. I'd be doing more for society if I killed every one of us. Right. Um, but I think you have to keep in mind the, the, the greater good or, or, or how this is, is going to play out. Uh, so it, it's just important that you, you kind of have your head screwed on straight when you go into a situation like that. It, in that first meeting in New York, we, they set us up for a tour of Times Square, and at the time, it's no longer there now. But there was a Toys R Us, and yes. we're walking. There, there was a group of us, probably about twenty-five of us, that were NAMBLA members that were walking to Times Square. And honest to Pete, you could feel the tension. You could feel the excitement of these guys, and I didn't. I couldn't figure out what was going on, but they were. They were excited it was like going to the big game and you know you're just about ready to hand your ticket to the ticket taker and walk through the gates and now we're getting ready for for the the World Series or the Rose Bowl or something but there's an excitement we walk into Toys R Us and there's a 60 foot indoor Ferris wheel and several of these guys ran to the railing and they were at the railing and they were watching children going around on the the uh, Ferris wheel and they are they are saying to themselves, oh, they're saying to each other, oh, look at that kid in that shirt. Here's what I you know, I'm gonna do to this to him, or this is what I do to this kid and all that. And I say that had I been Bob Hamer, the the <laughs> FBI agent, the civilian, I would have thrown him off the off the railing. That they they were so disgusting what they had said. And I think I probably most jurors would have let me off with the evidence about what they were saying they were going to do to these little boys. But I had to just keep in my mind that, okay, we can do this. We can get these guys, but we've got to do it right, and this is an important case. And in that particular investigation, that was kind of my aha moment. That was the uh, – Joseph Campbell talks about the hero's journey. Well, that was that was the turning point for me, because up until this point, I'd been corresponding with these guys. I had been I'd I'd been reading their magazines. I had their their written correspondence and how disgusting they were. But I didn't realize that they were still out on the street, that there were guys out on the street that, that had these ideas and views. And it was like, okay, this is important for us to try to take down the members of this organization.
0: Were you ever afraid after an arrest or say you're the Russian mafia, the Italian mafia, whoever, and you might take down a couple of heads or whoever here, but the entity is still alive and present. Were you ever afraid that years down the road, you have to always be looking over your shoulder, that these people will cause harm to you or your family?
1: Yeah. I I mean, I I think you've had Jay Dobbins on and, and, and other law enforcement officers. And yeah, I think that's something that we're, 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 all worried about and cognizant. And again, getting back to our early discussion, 15 years ago, it wasn't that big a deal, but now if you want to find me, you're going to find me. I mean, it's, it's pretty easy with, with all the, all the technology out there with, you know, I got to admit, I, I bought my house, but my my loan isn't to a post office box. It's to this piece of property. So, um, All right. yeah, you've you've got to be cognizant of your surroundings and, and, and be aware of them. And you never know when they're going to come after you. I, I, I do laugh when uh, when we took down the the. Operation Smoking Dragon, what what began with one person and what we did on the East Coast and the West Coast, we indicted 87 people and the arrest had taken place over a weekend. So we had virtually 87 people in custody and people from China were calling me on Monday wanting to know where so-and-so was. And I had told them that the last time I saw him, he'd met a girl at, at this club, we We'd actually, it's, it's a long story, but they thought I was having a divorce party at the Playboy Mansion. And uh, <laughs> so I just, I told them well, the last time I saw Mr. Chin, he was with some blonde, and I don't know what happened to him Saturday night. Well, the Bureau was afraid that China was trying to triangulate me and they were going to, you know, they were going to kill me. And of course, that would make it difficult to get all these convictions. But uh, I, kind of wanted them to put that in in writing and in paper so i could frame it and put it on my office wall that i was being triangulated but i never got that
0: when you work on a show like svu uh law and order how is it do you get flashbacks with those cases that seem far-fetched but are based on true stories and how did you actually get a
1: Led with that gig, doing some of those shows. Okay, yeah, it, yeah. SVU. I just, I just consulted for a couple episodes, uh, and it was just through dumb luck. I mean, met a guy who knew a person, that type of thing. I had, uh, when I finished up my FBI career, I'd worked on a, on a couple TV shows, uh, The Inside, which. Uh, don't tell me that was your favorite show because it got canceled after five episodes. But I wrote the story for I think episode twelve, and uh, I I kind of thought, oh, this is going to be my future now, working in Hollywood and and writing in right. Hollywood. And that show got canceled, and then I worked as uh, I had written a script for another TV show, Sue Thomas FBI, and was hoping that you know again this was going to develop in, into something, but. Uh, my writing career, at least in Hollywood, stumbled. I, I got some tech advising jobs, Angela's Eyes, and then, as you mentioned, uh, Law & Order SVU. And then I I worked on one episode of Sleeper Cell. So I've had a little bit of luck in Hollywood, not as much as I would have liked. But most of that was just networking. And, uh, and yeah, it, Part of it I, I wouldn't say flashbacks. It just, hey, this is what happened to me and uh, let's 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 run with this and, and see see how it goes. I think more uh, when my wife and I watch these shows, I'll kind of point out, oh, this is wrong here or this is what this means and I'm kind of doing a director's commentary for the the episodes.
0: Right. It's I, I've always because of the undercover life. Um, obviously, your background with Jay Dobbins, like, it seems like it, it would warrant such a great uh, story to be told, whether it, every week on TV or something like that. Just, are there shows out there? It, what do you recommend if for a proper, that's not too Hollywood, but undercover type of show?
1: I don't think there are any. Right. Um, you know, yeah, I hope one of your listeners is a uh, big time Hollywood producer and and. Wants wants to do uh, a a good undercover st- story. I think part of the problem, and you saw this with Jay, that his case lasted you know, for years. You, you just it's difficult in in a one hour episode to tell an undercover story. So you have to do it probably over a season long arc uh, to to really make it believable and make it to work uh, and. And a lot of shows aren't season-long arcs. They they want that 44 minutes plus commercials, and then you can show episode five or you can show episode 12, and you, you don't have to watch all the episodes in order to understand what's
0: going on. Was there a fear for you to put out your books as an author for the first time? And what kind of how, – how exciting is it for you to kind of – have this different part of your life now uh, after you retired from the FBI. Well, I
1: <laughs> I will say that I miss the undercover work. I I really do, and that's that was the hardest thing about retiring was was missing that. I I love the adrenaline rush. I love going face to face with the bad guys and and becoming one of them without becoming one of them. Seeing how far I could push the envelope and not get caught uh writing doesn't give me the the same thrill but literally i got out of the fbi without a whole lot of skills i mean you know they aren't they aren't hiring pathological liars out, out, out the civilian <laughs> community so uh not that i'm pathological but i was a pretty good liar uh, so there there weren't there weren't that many opportunities for me so writing Least the books, uh, it'll it'll allow me to draw upon my experiences. I mean, my first book, The Last Undercover, chronicles the Nambla investigation and then twelve other undercover cases in which I was the undercover agent. Uh, a couple of my novels have have done okay. Uh, again, there's an awful lot of Bob Hamer in the characters of my novels. They're just the protagonist is a lot better looking and he's younger and uh, a lot cooler than I am. But that's, but that's cause I'm, he's my protagonist. He's not me. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you would read those books, you'd get a pretty good insight into one, what undercover work is like and two probably what I'm like.
0: Now you said you spend a lot of time at the gym. Is that, uh, is that something you've always been, uh, into really with the fitness? Like how do you if yeah. you're undercover for so long you still have to recoil with your firearms and stuff like that right
1: yeah 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 you still you still have those those requirements um, so uh, yeah I, the gym was always important to me uh, working out running I, I ran a lot it was a good opportunity particularly running was good for me because i could i could work through my lines uh, right and, For me, I didn't sleep well when I was undercover. And and I'm sure Jay and and some other guys that you've talked to, because you you go over in your mind. Okay, if he finds my gun, what am I going to say? If he finds my recording device, what am I going to say? How am I going to react? If he says this, what am I going to do? How am I going to respond to that? And I think many times. In my mind, I had rehearsed that so that when the situation arose, I just, I, my response was so spontaneous that it was like, oh, that, that makes sense. Not knowing that I had probably rehearsed that particular line a, a half dozen times while I was running five or six miles of an hour or two before we, we actually had the, the meet. Um, occasionally, there were things that happened that I didn't have a response to. I I worked uh, the first female circumcision case that the federal government ever prosecuted, and I literally saw a man and a woman in a bathtub of blood after the woman had female circumcision, and the man had had his urethra rerouted through his scrotum. Now, when you come across a situation like that, it's a little difficult to have prepared in your own mind how you would respond to that situation so there were times that that you got caught uh without maybe the proper response but
0: uh so before that's insanity (laughs) you
1: you want to cut that out of the
0: no i'm actually really i'm really gonna promote that um the before I let you go, obviously you have a website, but are you on social media? Are you on TikTok? What do you, how do people want to find you?
1: How, no. uh, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm on Facebook. That's that's the extent of it. But, uh, yeah, Bob, bobhamer.net, B O B H A M E R.net. And it has links to to my books. And,
0: uh, now the last undercover, Enemies Among Us and Targets Down. I actually ordered Targets Down, uh, um, I I can Some people, will they. I try to research the gas, but I can't read a book that fast. I, mean, oh, I yeah. could read, read, but I like to enjoy the book. Uh, yeah. So I went on Amazon. Got you can get all the books there, and uh, I'm excited to kind of dig deeper into your stories. And uh, I thank you for being on here, and uh, we will do this again too, because I've already got a ton of questions. Uh, okay. About about the uh, bathtub seat. So. <laughs> uh,
1: well that's that's actually in the the last undercover it's in that it, it's it's in that first book that I wrote because it was the most bizarre case that, that that I've ever worked
0: i love that well thank you bob for this it uh, we will talk soon
1: thanks a lot appreciate you having me on